Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, let me invite you this morning to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18, and that is what we'll study together. So John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage, for your word, and we pray that your spirit would also be given. His work in our hearts is all our hope, that the word of God will land upon us not as the word of man only, but as it really is, the word of God. 
Help us to see your own glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1995, <clears throat> Joan Osborne uh, released a single entitled, One of Us. Maybe you know it. Uh, the most famous part of it asks this. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see? If seeing meant that you'd have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets, uh, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. Now, what Osborne suggests is something quite modern, and that is a self-deifying kind of skepticism. It's not the truth that matters, but whether or not I like the truth and if I don't like the truth, why not draw up a God that is to my liking, which will inevitably resemble one of us? Now, still the lyrics, not to mention God's Word, prod us to ask and answer an eternally vital question. Let's just say that God did happen to tabernacle or dwell among us. Would we recognize Him? What if He spoke to us? What if He even healed us? Uh, what if he then went on to, to charge our very souls, sin no more? How about then? Would we recognize him then? Would we see him and see and go on to love him and trust him and worship him? Because you see, here's the thing. The thing is, the face of God is not an if. It is not an if. As a matter of fact, God made the light of the knowledge of His glory to shine upon us in the face of Jesus Christ. In Him, God did become one of us without ceasing to be Himself in order to save all who by grace see that and thus cannot but believe the truth. And it is impossible to overstate how badly we need that grace in our souls, how desperate our illness is that we can taste that grace and see that grace and still despise the divine kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. Well, friends, uh, God is not a slob like one of us. He's the divine Savior. And just so we cannot afford, except at greatest cost, for Jesus to remain a stranger on a bus to us. Well, it's to alleviate that, that we have and come now to our text, uh, where we first are meant to see God doing work. God doing work. And you say, well, Brian, I'm looking at the text there, and that's Jesus there in those verses, to which I reply, exactly. And next week, we're going to hear Jesus say, the Son can do only what He sees the Father doing. Only what He sees the Father doing. That is what we're seeing here in our passage. As a most truly 
faithful Israelite, Jesus has come up again to Jerusalem for a feast and made his way to the sheep gate, and by that sheep gate, a pool notorious for its healing powers. And because of this, it was a popular gathering place for all manner of disabled persons, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And these people gathered under the popular belief that the first one in to these bubbles, stirred up, would be supernaturally blessed. And being supernaturally blessed, that perhaps a new station or new situation in life awaited them. Things were not as they may be today. We tend to be a culture, right? That's very aware and generally accommodating, I think, toward the disabled. Uh, We don't tend to place any kind of religious implications of any real significance on whether or why someone may be blind, for example. But the Israel of Jesus' day did. And so such individuals were commonly held in low esteem. They were set to the side of high religious society. They were marginalized as a pariah, a persona non grata, right? A person not welcome in the norm of that culture. And so where we find Jesus and where we see Jesus put his attention and activity is quite instructive of the heart of God. One society's problem, it seems, is the son's priority. And as his people, is it not supposed to be ours also? Do we have an eye for people that is truly impartial? Is it part of our day to find a broken soul to bless? Uh, We're a little more like God. I want us to hear. We're a little more like God than when we're on the lookout to help the helpless. Like Jesus. And for reasons, we see He is especially focused here, verse 5, on one man. One man who had been an invalid for 38 years. A, by the way, not a nice round number. 38 years, not 40 or something like that. 38 years to establish something very important, historicity. Uh, This is not fable. John means that this is an eyewitness account caught up in the minutia of fact. But the point is that a man who, as we'll hear, was a leftover for the leftovers, was not so, was not a leftover for the God-man. He was priority. Knowing this man, as well as this man's condition and his plight, Jesus spies him out. Jesus goes up to him. Jesus says to him, our verse 6, do you want to be healed? Which seems like a really strange question. Jesus, of course, I want to be healed. Uh, Who wouldn't want to have nearly four decades of probably paralysis relieved? But the man's answer is really curious. It's not exactly yes. It's more of a time-worn, hope-beaten, heart-jaded sigh of an answer. And I trust we can sympathize with that. I trust we can feel deeply with the heartbreaking words that he gives to us there. What does he say? Sir, I have no one. (laughs) Ugh. I have no one. I have no one, verse 7, to 
put me into the pool at the appropriate time for when it comes, another not so lame as I am gets in before me. I move, but they move faster. They pass me by and they beat me to it. So apparently then a humbled body does not always guarantee humble souls. And here I mean his companions in hardship. Those who also needed help were not so quick to give help to someone who needed it more desperately than they did. So far is true pity from old hearts. The man describes it as sort of a rat race for those blessed bubbles. And to be sure it's no ringing endorsement either of the leaders of the Jewish nation at that time or the heart of that Israel that a helpless man like this had no one to help him. But about Jesus' question, it is really a question. It is really a question of whether the man wants Jesus to heal him. As we go along, we're going to see this man as far as one put it from the stuff of which heroes are made. He actually says that he's truly an unpleasant creature. So that there is real question about the the desire and hope of his heart and soul. And Jesus knows this. I mean, already one would think think that the, the mere attention Jesus gives him, again, he said, I have nobody, but here's Jesus. Jesus is giving him attention. You would think that this would have renewed his hope. He has no one, but there is someone. And there is someone, and still, as he says, he has no one. And this is so often the sad state of affairs for long-suffering people. They've given up on being helped. Even when it's right beside them. They see only the problem. And even as God is with them, as it's God who's right beside them, they limit Him by their circumstances. As another put it, the man, quote, limits God's help to his own ideas. How often do we do that? Limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more than he can conceive in his own mind. That is, he doesn't know Jesus. He hasn't heard of him as the official slash father in Capernaum from a week ago. Despite his disease, he's not so desperate as that father was. But regardless, what he believes is that he's all alone in the world. And maybe that's where you are today as well. You've been hurt so long, you don't dare believe in hope incarnate. Well, I pray the text will prove a remedy for you. As we come into verses 8 and 9 here, that whether the man wants to be healed or not, in this case, Jesus is willing. Would any receive divine help? Christ's will is to do the will of God, whether that is to heal or make the best use of the infirmity, as is Christ will help. His will to be merciful is not the question. It's the assumption in the text, which makes it stand out. He wants to restore people. The question is, do we want to be restored by Him? 
And that is what Jesus is hunting after here. And at a much, much deeper level than just healing of the body. So now, to me, this is one of those texts where right, we're so familiar with it. We, we miss a lot of the actual details in the story. So you spend a week and you study it, and a far different lesson comes out than you expected. For when we pair it with a father from a week ago, there's really no comparison between these two figures. There's only contrast. The needy father, remember, he heard about Jesus, and then he came to Jesus, and he begged Jesus, he urged Jesus, he believed Jesus, he took Jesus at his word. It was all about true faith in Jesus. But here, there's no faith at all. None in the text. So what? Here's what. The case before us is less about creating pity for this man's long-suffering illness and more about creating praise for God's characteristic mercy. We might say it's about the merciful mercy of God toward all people, whether there is faith or not. Beloved, absolutely, God is for us in a special, covenantal way. And it's also true that in a terrifying sense, God is really against unbelievers. And yet, the Bible teaches us that He still exercises an intimate care over all the world, including all people, which, yes, as we're going to see, is meant to lead all those people to repentance and to faith in Christ, and we're coming to that. But here in verse 8, we get to first witness the unfiltered kindness of Jesus. Friends, we know <clears throat> that we highlight stories and we create memes of people doing kind things to other people, right? Human decency, not because those things are so abundant in our world, but because they are so rare. They're so rare. You just think about Afghanistan right now. You just think about what's happening over in Ukraine. You think about what's happening all around you from day to day. These things are rare. Kindness is very, very rare. They, these things are the exceptions to the rule. But Jesus is the rule. I'm certain that Jesus did more real good in three years than all humanity has done in the whole of history. And that what we have in our text then it's just a mere sampling of it. John's going to say that later in the gospel, by the way. So, with no reason but his own overflowing pity, Jesus speaks. He says to this man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. What we see is that his overflowing pity gives rise to omnipotent power. And the man who had been 38 years an invalid was in an instant healed. Can you believe it? Can you imagine the immediate development of perfectly renewed strength? The man suddenly finding his legs, as we might say, so that he ably stood up with his bed 
and began to walk. That is what happened. 38 years of debilitating illness found remedy in a snap by that uniquely effective word of Jesus. What a physical therapist. No, do this or do that for six weeks or six months or however long. All it is is get up and go. Jesus is the manifestation of him who in John's final book, Revelation, says, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is the one who brings that not yet into the already in a very unique and divine way. He is God working. Okay? And he's not finished here. In fact, we find this miracle is rather measly, when set alongside the necessary salvation of this man's soul. And so let's come to see God now deepening His work. Picking back up in verse 9. And really, here comes the real crux of the matter. What God in Christ did, He did when? On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. And that spells trouble, which is itself troubling. Uh, The religious leaders, those guardians of the law, see this man, and seeing this man, they take issue with what they see. You see, over the years, they've developed at least, at least 39 laws additional to God's Sabbath law in order to protect it from violation. And that, of course, included carrying, say, a virtual yoga mat from one place to another. It was all very serious. Very serious and enslaving because eschewing of what God actually said and always intended by what He said. How do we know that? Well, it's really as simple as Jesus. Despite these dust-ups seem so common, Jesus intentionally and repeatedly did good where it was most needed, on the Sabbath, like he's trying to get in trouble. Okay? As if he held the conviction that the Sabbath existed precisely to bless broken people, both body and soul, with all the benefits of God that he is pleased to give. It was not meant to bind people and weigh them down and then to break them further, but to free people, to lighten the load, and to lift them up to God to find rest in him. And so as Jesus makes clear, there is a definite distinction between God and these guardians. They see the man now healed, walking about with his bed, and they charge him, sinner. Wow. That is what they mean in verse 10. By being unlawful. Unlawful. It's against Moses. It's against the law of God, or at least against the subversive traditions that they had attached to it. And there we see a primary mark of a pharisaical heart. We've seen God's heart in Christ, now a pharisaical heart. How they make no inquiry at all as to why this man is doing what he's doing. Otherwise, if they had, they would have learned about, you know, a miracle of God. But no, where Christ's eye was on that man 
for grace and for good. Their eye is only on him for accusation and condemnation. A judgment based, bear in mind, more upon the transgression of their notions than the actual scriptures of God. Brothers and sisters, if we would be a gospel people, if we would be a gospel culture, if we would be a gospel community, we cannot share their heart. All right. Well, listen, that's all very awful. Even more awful is what happens next. How under their charge, the man who had just tasted the merciful mercy of God throws that stranger on a bus under the bus in order to spare himself. It's it's all very Adamic. It's part of our, our sinful nature to blame shift and try as we might to justify ourselves even when the scrutiny is less than divine. Right? It's just the, just the fear of man here is what he's facing. It is not a good look to me for this man to say as he does, uh, wait, wait, guys, uh, the, the man who healed me, that man, just so we're clear, he was the one who said to me, take up my bed and walk. <laughs> it seems he's trying to absolve himself by placing the blame on Jesus. He doesn't want that kind of trouble. And maybe that's what was behind Jesus' earlier question, Do you really want me to heal you? Trouble for my sake is going to come with it. Okay. And once more, it is troubling that the inquisitors can hear of this healing and totally disregard it. And in disregarding it, go after the one who did it. They're so sure that they're in the right that they are blind just how wrong they are. And to the point they start a manhunt for a guy proving, just now, heavenly authority on the Sabbath. How can that be? Unless God is with him. No matter. We see they don't get very far in their manhunt because the man that was healed, as it says, never caught the name of his healer, which when you think about it is truly incredible. (laughs) 38 years an invalid? Healed just like that? You didn't get his name? Oh, man. Likely proves two things. One, this man's condition is worse than he knows. A physical paralysis or whatever it was was not his most urgent problem. And second, Jesus is a ninja. With a purpose. He is a master at slipping away from a slippery sort of popularity with people. And why would that be? But because he doesn't want the primary purpose of God to be unclear. So, to be clear, we know Jesus did signs and wonders. But knowing how people would take those signs and wonders and parlay them into a mission and purpose that is at odds with the cross 
You can't go to the cross. We need you. Because of that, Jesus typically avoided the rush of awe and wonder. Or whenever whatever he did generated awe and wonder, generated those great crowds as it's going to in the next chapter, chapter 6, he immediately begins to do what? To say, preach hard things like the cross. Remember this? You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood and stuff like that. That's what he begins to preach. But in that way, he means to accomplish something. And what he means to accomplish is clarity, again, on the primary purpose of God through him. Christ did not come primarily to be a wonder worker. Christ came primarily to be the Savior of sinners. It wasn't to heal a man of his paralysis while leaving his soul completely unaddressed in spiritual death. Friends, what ultimate good is a healthy lower half if that healthy lower half ends up as part of a person in hell? Far better to spend your days on earth fraught with all kinds of disease, but with resurrection life in your soul than vice versa. Jesus is not confused about the infinitely more urgent need for every individual that has ever existed. And so verse 14, at a better time for it, Jesus returns to this man. He is not finished with him at the healing. And he says something that is totally startling. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more. So that nothing worse may happen to you. So let's just stumble into that jungle for a second and try to clear a path. First, I need you to see that Jesus confirms that the man has been healed. He's been healed, so there's no doubt that this man has just been touched by the omnipotent mercy of God in his body. And to what then, dear ones, again, is God's long-suffering kindness always meaning to lead us? Romans chapter 2, verse 4, answer is repentance. And that is where Jesus means to lead this man. You are well. Sin no more. Sin no more. And so now we're getting down to it. The controversial Christ. For in saying this, he says, this awful illness did not excuse this man as a sinner. Just because he was most pitiable did not mean he was not still liable for his sins. His body may have been frozen, but his sin was still as active as ever in his soul. As seen in his lack of faith, his spiritual density, his immediate attempt to justify himself. And unfortunately, that only continues in what follows. This man was a sinner, and he was sinning, and he had sinned. And as that is more 
dreadful than any physical illness Jesus, in effect, charges him, by the mercies of God in your life, right now, repent. Make a clean break. Make a lasting break with sin in your life. Sin no more. From what we've already seen in John's Gospel, he really means you need to be born again, man. You need to trust that your healer is your Savior. So that being made to walk in your legs, you would now begin to walk in your heart with God. You would begin to follow Jesus. Your walk would begin to be defined by grace and by godliness. So we need to hear Jesus saying to this man, your awful hardship is not a trump card before the bar of God. 38 years of this illness, awful, awful as it was, is not nearly able to win you eternal life. That's how awful sin is. And how monumental the blood of Christ is. Before we get to that, we need to reckon further with how Jesus ends it here. You see what he says? He doesn't just stop at, you're well, sin no more. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Uh, We're familiar, I think, with Genesis Joseph. Joseph in Genesis, not Jesus' adopted father. Uh, We've studied Job as a church for over a year, I think. We will eventually, maybe in a year, Get to John 9. Uh, We know that bitter providence, we know that bitter providence cannot always be tied to personal sin. Sometimes it's tied to another's sin. Sometimes it's tied to life in a fallen world. Other times, quite to the contrary, it's tied to the fact that we're actually righteous. At other times, it's to especially display the glory of God. Okay, we got all that. None of that says that our trials are never the result of our personal sin. So in fact, here, in this specific case, Jesus seems to imply that the man's disease was the result of some sin that he had committed prior to it. That despite its length, It was but a temporary judgment of God against him. A judgment, let it be noted, that did not keep God from them coming into the world to kindly heal and offer him eternal reconciliation by Jesus Christ. And what a kindness it was. What an incredible kindness it was when doing the math. I know we have some math people in here, so let's get our thinking caps on. We come upon a wonder uh, as this man's been ill for 30, how many years? 38 years, calculate. And insofar as it was related to some sin he committed prior to that 38 years, and Jesus, as far as we know, was no more than in his mid-30s. At his death, uh, this sin was committed at least a few years before Jesus was born. 
Huh. And yet, he knows this man who doesn't know him. (laughs) And he knows the sin. And it seems he knows not only the effect, but he knows the cause of it. How so? Well, because as every sin that is really a sin is a sin against God. It was a sin against God, the Son. Our heads just exploded. It was a sin against the pre-incarnate Word. It was a sin against Jesus Christ before He was technically Jesus, the God-man. And with a divine view of it, that is a perfect view of the awfulness of this man's sin, here Jesus is owed eternally more than the mere though absent thanks of this healed man. And what is he doing? He's still seeking the salvation of that man's soul. I can't even get over my wife burning my toast. Or something like that. I don't know, I just made that up. She's never burned my toast. But friends, we, all that to say, we hardly know the breadth, the length, the height, or depth of the gracious, gracious, gracious love of God in Christ. And even with this side of it, it is hard to see anything but a tragic response to it in verse 15. Oh, we are so depraved apart from grace. If it didn't come clear in the healing, it has now in his seeking this man's salvation that the man's healer is Jesus. And how saddening to see this man, given so much grace, play the turncoat. How instead of repenting, how instead of believing in Jesus, he goes on to solidify his self-defense by betraying Jesus to the religious authorities. Unbelievable hardness. The guy who healed me, just to let you guys know, was Jesus. Man, we don't know. We don't know. But I hope that man's end, which is unseen, was better than what we've just seen. Because folks, there is something, there is something worse than 38 years an invalid in this world. The wages of sin enjoyed to death is an eternal sentence under the just wrath of God. Friend, listen. Do not fear what can only destroy your body. Fear Him, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, who can destroy both body and soul in hell.
Oh man, so oddly to me then, this man is really a cautionary tale. That so long as you can be saved, while the grace of God is abounding all around you, please, for the sake of your own souls, do not put off repentance. Do not put off faith in Jesus Christ. Don't put off believing and trusting your immortal soul to the only one who can save you from your sins. It is ironic that what this man means for a defense actually condemns him. While what would condemn Jesus justifies him for who he truly is. It's in the priority of sin and saving someone from it that Christ's identity crystallizes in the passage. We've seen God doing work. And we've seen God deepening His work. Now, there's still the need to see God defending it. God defending His work. The man has named Jesus as the real Sabbath breaker here. And it says, if we're now thrown into the jury box. And once there, we hear this remarkable testimony. How for healing a man and seeking the salvation of his soul on the Sabbath, the authorities were persecuting Jesus. And so on their end, all the stuff that you need to push it to the cross, it begins right here. As it should. Listen. If Jesus was not who He claimed to be, namely God incarnate. Friends, listen. It will not do to set Jesus aside as just a nice man who inspires us to do nice things. Jesus won't let us do that. He refuses to be sidelined like that. He forces us into an all-vital decision about the truth of who He is. So, we're sitting in that jury box and we hear it asked, will you stop doing all those wondrous signs? Sorry, let me backtrack. I mean sins on the Sabbath. And we hear that voice like no other say, no. No. And so they ask again, why not? And the voice replies, because I can't. I can't stop doing what I'm doing. I cannot rest. You see, my father is working until now. And I am working. Oh, man. And the, uh, the litigators start, you know, tearing their robes and plucking their beards and tossing dirt all over the place because in saying that, Jesus has just, verse 18, what's He done? He has made Himself equal with God. That is, he's just committed blasphemy and become liable 
to the death penalty unless he is who he says he is. But man, oh man, what a thing to claim. He is either insane or he is God. You must decide. Here's the idea at work. That while God did rest from creating on the seventh day, He didn't stop working. He didn't stop, uh, I don't know, sustaining the universe. He didn't cease from working out all of His meticulous plans and purposes. He did not rest from doing the good that God does. He did not rest from carrying out the work of redemption, which is what it's all about. Even on the Sabbath, the Father is working. He's doing His thing. And the Son cannot do otherwise. He can only do likewise because He is likewise Divine. There it is. That's an incredible thing to hear. Can you imagine that? This man, Jesus, saying, in effect, I'm the one who sustains the universe. What? My Father is working. I am working. So what do I want to do? Kill Him. want to kill him because despite the evidence, they just can't believe it. Indeed, they can't even really fathom what Jesus is actually claiming. What I mean is, they're not hearing him in Trinitarian terms, as we do. They think he's exalting himself as another God, opposite, but equal to God. And to that, we also, as Christians, would, we don't believe that either, okay? We too, like them, are monotheists. It's just that we have come by grace to believe the biblical truth, the mystery Jesus makes plain as it can be, that there is only one true and living God eternally existing in three distinct but co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But, at any rate, you're in the box. You've got the evidence. And again, you must decide. It is of the greatest consequence. If they are right, understand, the cross was not wrong. But if they are wrong, and Jesus is true, His cross was the darkest hour in human history, which as yet in God's sovereign hands was oh so necessary and ultimately incomparably beautiful for our salvation. For who can save us from God? You ever wondered? Who can save us from God? But God. What payment can be made, not 38 years of 
paralysis, apparently. What payment can be made that makes a full atonement for all our sins, but the blood shed on the cross by the divine Messiah? How can anyone enter God's rest from dead works to eternal life, but by the work of the God-man on the cross? Friends, listen. John's Gospel is written to produce faith in God, just not faith in your God. You understand the difference? It's written to produce faith in the God who is anything but a stranger to us. The God who does have a face who is one of us, who did live among us, who even laid down that perfectly righteous life for us with a most anti-slob purpose to save us from our sins. The question again this morning is, do you recognize Him? Will you believe Him? Will you receive the grace of God right now? Will you take Jesus at His word right now? Will you be saved from your sins right now? You can be because of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. We all pray so. My dear ones, what a thing to know, as our text has taught us this morning, that our Savior is God the Son. How priceless to know that no matter what happens to us in life, no matter uh, what takes hold of our bodies, no matter what brings us to death, our souls are safe. That they and therefore we cannot be safer with God than in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear as we finish up here that if Christ has saved us from our sins, we are saved from them. And therefore we are assured of rest divine. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Pray that it would have its full effect now. Lord, we look to You. Again, the words of a mere man, have a kind of power, but not nearly the omnipotence that every heart in here needs right now. So please come, improve again to us poor creatures and sinners alike that you are in fact God the Savior. We ask it in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.